Hello everyone and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren and for those of you who have been following uh, the show, you'll know that we've been doing an interview uh, every week uh, so far this year. In the last few weeks we've talked to uh, author Douglas Murray. Uh, last week uh, we spoke with British philosopher Sir Roger Scruton. Before that we spoke with uh, Christopher Buckley, the novelist and son of William F. Buckley and uh, also Nancy Percy, the author of a new book, Love Thy Body. And what I've been really trying to do as well is sort of keep up with the political news and keep up with the new books that are coming out and sort of uh, give all of you guys a sense of, of what's out there. And I noticed a, a little while back that a book that I did not expect to come out had just surfaced as a number one bestseller on Amazon. And that is a book by Juanita Broderick. As some of you may recognize her name as she appeared with President Donald Trump at his debate with Hillary Clinton, uh, because she is one of the women, uh, women, pardon me, who alleges that she was sexually assaulted by Bill Clinton. And she joined a number of other women who have made similar accusations uh, at this debate. And it was just a, a palpably awkward moment. And the title of, of Juanita's book is, is pretty raw as well. The title is, You Better Put Some Ice on That, How I Survived Being Raped by Bill Clinton. Uh, the title comes from the fact that apparently as he turned to leave the room, he said, you'd better put some ice on that. This is a really, you know, raw thing to, to use as the title of your book. And I was, I was interested to find out what her perspective was, because obviously her story became relevant again when Hillary Clinton ran for the presidency, because uh, in Juanita's version of the events, she was threatened by Hillary Clinton after she was sexually assaulted by the Attorney General of Arkansas, uh, Bill Clinton, who would of course go on to serve two terms as President of the United States. And the story has gained more relevance since the uh, emergence of the Me Too movement, where a lot of people are talking about how survivors should be believed. And then, of course, the question crops up, well, if survivors should be believed, then why is it that people seem to either not have believed uh, Juanita Broderick's story or simply ignored it entirely because it was ideologically convenient to do so? Now, her story has been getting a lot of attention, not simply due to the fact that she uh, appeared at the debate with Hillary Clinton, uh, with uh, Donald Trump, I should say, but also because people have come out and said that we need to take a look at what actually happened there. And we actually have quite a few liberals who are sort of facing the ideological blinders that prevented them from taking a string of women accusing Bill Clinton of these things seriously. So in November uh, tw uh, 13, 2017, there was actually an op-ed in the New York Times titled, I Believe Juanita. Uh, where one journalist sort of did a mea culpa for having ignored this story for so long and, and, and discussing how the left had obviously had an intentional blind spot in response to Bill Clinton. And the reason for this is, is pretty simple. The reason people ignored the accusations about Bill Clinton, by and large, is due to the fact that Bill Clinton was delivering policy that the left desperately wanted. In fact, one feminist famously joked about presidential knee pads and said that, you know, women all owed Bill Clinton a free pass or even more due to the fact that he was willing to keep abortion legal. That gives you a bit of a glimpse into how feminism sold itself out entirely. Uh, and essentially said, we don't care if this guy's a predator, we don't care if this guy has been accused and very credibly accused of rape, uh, we are going to disbelieve, trash, smear all of the women who come out and accuse him of things, 
and uh, and we're going to do this simply because Bill Clinton is devout in his dedication to Planned Parenthood and to the abortion industry. This is a lot of people might think, well, why why is this story relevant? And I think I've given a, a few good reasons for why this story is relevant again. But it's also just important, I think, uh, to realize the extent to which the left is willing to go to protect the abortion industry. If you think about that for a moment, there were women who came forward with credible allegations of sexual assault against Bill Clinton, allegations that almost nobody would have been able to survive except for, as we discovered, uh, Donald Trump, who weathered uh, his own series of accusations uh, quite well, obviously, because he got elected. But the fact that these allegations were ignored, not because people initially disbelieved them, they were ignored simply due to the fact that they wanted abortion to remain legal and they were willing to sacrifice anybody uh, in order to ensure that this remained the case. And it will show you the lengths that the abortion industry and those who support the abortion industry are willing to go to in order to ensure that this one ultimately sacred so-called right remains intact. They claim that it's a woman's movement, but of course women can get tossed under the bus with, with utter callousness if the narrative those women are putting out there in any way uh, contradicts the interests of the abortion industry and legal abortion. So I think that Juanita Broderick's story um, is well, culturally relevant and also just interesting because it shows what people are willing to do to ensure that the legal killing of preborn children in the womb remains legal. So I emailed her a while back when I noticed that her book was a number one bestseller on Amazon and uh, she agreed to come on and tell her story and I'll give a bit of a warning at the outset. Um, she's pretty blunt in describing what happened, so it might be uh, difficult for some people to hear, so just a, a warning at the outset. I would say that this this uh, episode probably deals with the uh, scenarios of sexual assault and in a way that I haven't dealt with them on this show since I uh, interviewed the former porn star Jessica Neely. And <clears throat> some people said after listening to that interview, we wish we would have been warned in advance at just how graphic some of the information was going to be. So this is a, a, a fair warning that some of the things she describes are obviously very disturbing. And uh, without further comment from myself, I'd like to present my conversation with Juanita Broderick. So what made you decide to write a book about this after all these years? Well, you know, I never intended to. Just like I told Lisa Myers in 99 during the interview, I had no desire to write a book. But I had been interviewed so much uh, in the presidential campaign, and I would make notes about trying to be accurate when I was telling people what had happened to me. I, I wanted to be as accurate as possible. So I sat down at my computer when I came back from the inauguration, of President Trump, and I thought, you know, I've got all these notes scattered everywhere. I need to sit down and put all this in context and just write all this out so my family could have it someday. And I, and I never thought anything. I worked for about two months, and it was on my computer, went away, forgot about it. And then all of a sudden one day I had this call from my co-writer, Nick Lully. He was an investigative reporter out of Jacksonville, Florida. And he was requesting uh, to do like a serialized interview with me. And I thought, well, you know, that might be interesting. That would be something else to, you know, to give to my family someday or let them have. And so I said, I said, you know, I've 
I've got all this data down, and I will just email it to you so you'll have sort of a guideline to go by. So then about 24 hours later, he had read it all, and he called and he said, no, you really need to do a book. And I said, Lord, I have no idea, Jonathan, how to do a book. And he said, let me format it and get some ideas to you. So that's what he did. He took all of my words, formatted it, and said, I think we need to self-publish this. So that's how it happened. So how's the book been selling so far? Uh, Fairly good. I'm not for sure of the numbers. Uh, Nick has the one that... uh, goes on create space which is an amazon subsidiary Mm -hmm. uh that uh, checks on our book and Mm -hmm. how it's doing it goes up and down depending on uh uh interviews that i do now let's uh, kind of start off because some people might not know your story even though it became a lot more public uh during during as you mentioned this recent presidential campaign you know several decades right several decades after the initial campaigns uh, from Bill Clinton. I first read about your story, actually, in, in Michael Isikoff's book, Uncovering Clinton. He was a reporter for Newsweek, uh-huh. as you might remember. And then again in, right. uh, in Christopher Hitchens' book, um, No One Left to Lie to. He talks about your story quite extensively. But just for... You know what happened with Christopher Hitchens? I love that man. He was After he first read the book, I mean, after he first his, wrote his first uh, edition, he contacted me, and we talked back and forth. In the first edition, I'm not real visible in it. Right. But after we talked for several weeks, he wrote the second edition and then dedicated a whole chapter to my situation. So I was very, very – I admired Christopher Hitchens very much. Yeah, he was, he was, he was quite the writer. And for, for those who don't really know – uh, much about your story. Would you mind just uh, telling the listeners exactly how your story unfolded? Sure. Do you want me to go back to when I first met Bill Clinton? Yeah. Okay. When I was in 1974, I opened my nursing homes. Uh, I was a new registered nurse and and entrepreneur uh, with nursing home businesses. Well, in 1978, after I had been in business for about three years, uh, I met Bill Clinton when he came to my nursing home. I had been working about a month in his campaign for governor. He was attorney general at the time. And I had been working in his campaign, and the state office called and asked if he could come by my nursing home on a campaign tour. And I said, yes, we would love to have him come by. So that's how I initially met Bill Clinton when he came by my nursing home. And I took that opportunity to tell him about the struggling nursing home businesses in Arkansas. The reimbursement rate was very low, and in order to give quality care, you know, nursing homes could not make a a decent profit. So I began to explain that to him while he was at my nursing home. And he said, you know, I'd like to talk to you about this further. And he said, are you ever in Little Rock? And I said, yes. In fact, I'll be there in about three weeks. And he said, well, call my campaign office and let's get together and bring me some data of what you're talking about. Right. So, yeah. So I worked on that for several hours, making graphs and showing what the state paid and, and what we were reimbursed and what it took to care for just one resident. And so the three weeks passed by, 
And my nurse and I, Norma Rogers, went to Little Rock to a meeting. And after we got there, the next morning, we called his campaign headquarters, and the young lady that answered the phone uh, gave me a number to call, and I called it. Bill Clinton answered, and uh, I said, could we possibly, I'm here today for a meeting, could we possibly come over for our, during our hour lunch to uh, bring you this information? And he said, you know, I'm not going to be there today. Why don't I just come to your hotel this morning and talk with you about it? He said, we could meet down in the uh, Camelot coffee shop. So I thought that was great. And so I told Norma, I said, you go on to the meeting, and when I get through in the coffee shop, I'll be to the, on to the meeting. And so Mr. Clinton said, I'll call you when I get there. Norma went to the meeting. I waited in the room. And in a little while, I get a call from Bill Clinton downstairs, and he says, you know, it's so crowded in here, and there's reporters down here. Can we just have coffee and talk about this in your room? And that didn't alarm me. I'd never been alone with a stranger before in my room, uh, but it didn't alarm me. This was the attorney general of my state, and I had important matters to discuss with him. So I, I told him yes, and he said, well, I'll be up shortly. And so I ordered coffee to the room. In a little bit, there was a knock on the door, and I opened the door. And there stands Bill Clinton in these dark sunglasses. Jonathan, that should have been a tip-off from me from the beginning. I was only 35. I was very naive when it came to men. And so anyway, I ushered him on in the room. And he came in, took his suit coat off, laid it across the table. And I began to pour the coffee and I picked up the file for the information that I wanted to talk about. And he sort of stopped me, and he said, come over here. I want to show you this. And so I walk around the table over to where he's standing, and he's pointing out the window to a little building down below. And as I come around to him, as he points, he puts his arm around me to point to the building. And that immediately made me extremely uncomfortable, and I back away from him and start to go around, back around to my side of the table. And that's when he grabbed me and tried to start kissing me, and that's when I began to get loud and tell him, no, you know, no, uh, this, this is not what I invited you up here for, and begin to explain to him other things why that was not going to happen. And uh, as I've explained in so many interviews in the past, that is what happened. Mm -hmm. He grabbed me, forced me down on the bed, and horrifically raped me. It it was, uh, it's hard to even think back to that time and what happened to me. And then what happened after that? He just walked up and left. No. When when it was over, I mean, my he began to bite me during the rape. Uh, when I be, would become loud, he would bite my upper lip, and it was so painful. And when the rape was over, I sat up on the side of the bed, and I was crying. I was devastated. I, I can't even I can't even begin to relate how how terrible that was. And I begin to cry, and he looks at me with this frustrated and bewildered look, and 
doesn't really say anything. And then he calmly puts on his suit coat and walks to the door, puts on his sunglasses, and just sort of motions to my mouth, which was bleeding and swelling. It was already twice the normal size. And he calmly says, you'd better put some ice on that, and walks out the door. What did you do after that happened? It's, I, I've read this. Uh, I, I've read what you've written on this, and I've, I've read what other people have, have written on it. And and where everything seems to where everybody seems to start arguing is is after he walked out and you just didn't know what to do and what happened next? I laid back down and tried to tried to collect myself and try to understand what had just happened to me. It it was uh, it was horrific. And then I completely forgot about Norma. I forgot about the meeting. And about thirty forty minutes after the rape. I hear a knock on the door, and I open it, and there stands Norma. And she sees me in this condition, and she just rushes in and takes a hold of me. And I explain to her what had just happened. And of course, she runs and gets ice from my mouth. And she comes back, and we're just sitting there trying to understand what had just happened. And she says, what do you want to do? And all I could think of was go home. All I wanted to do is get as far away from Little Rock and Bill Clinton as I possibly could. So that's what we did. She helped me change my clothes, packed all of our stuff, and we were probably gone within the hour. So where does Hillary Clinton enter this story? It's interesting because this story has, well, it, it gained national attention for the second time during this presidential campaign because it was, again, another Clinton running. And one of the things that all of the newspapers and the TV shows were talking about last year was Hillary Clinton's role in this entire story. So when does she surface? Well, as far as personally, she surfaced uh, about three weeks after after the rape and I returned to my business and tried to tried to get some idea of what on earth you know I was going through at the time the emotional trauma was terrific anyway prior to the rape I had volunteered for Bill Clinton's gubernatorial campaign I'd worked about 30 days before I met him and about a month and a half before the rape occurred and I called the campaign headquarters and told them that my business was too demanding and I couldn't volunteer anymore. But before that time, I had helped arrange a fundraiser at my friend's home, uh, Buddy and Betty Criswell. They were good friends. Buddy was my dentist, and Betty was, uh, I played tennis with Betty at our local club. And they had this beautiful home, so I had asked them to have the fundraiser at their home. Well, I knew I couldn't go to that fundraiser, so I went, I couldn't attend it itself. So I told Betty I couldn't attend, but I'd bring her some information that she needed and also some checks that people had given me when I was out campaigning during that month uh, and putting up yard signs. So I went up to the fundraiser about 30 minutes early to give Betty the information. I wanted to get in and out before the Clintons arrived. I couldn't bear the thought of seeing them. But before I could get out, after I gave Betty the information, in walks uh, the Clintons and the man who drove them, 
from the airport, Chuck Watts. He was a local pharmacist, a very big Clinton supporter. And Chuck comes over to me and he says, I just want you to know that the topic of the conversation all the way from the airport was about you and them asking me questions. So I thought, oh, this was wrong. I should never have even come up here. And so I start to the front door. And as I start to the front door, uh, Hillary Clinton catches me before I can get out. She comes over to me and she says, it's so nice to meet you, Juanita. I'm paraphrasing now because it's been so long ago. Mm-hmm. But I do remember her saying with a very beautiful smile on her face, I just want you to know how appreciative Bill and I are for everything that you do in this campaign. And I probably just nodded. I could have said thank you. I just wanted to get out of there. So I turned to walk away, and I feel somebody grab me from behind. And I just think it's somebody going to tell me goodbye. I turn around, and it's Hillary Clinton that has a hold of my arm. And she pulls me to her. There's no longer a smile on her face. And she very gruffly says to me under her breath, do you understand everything you do? And I got I got so frightened at that moment, I headed for the door and left home long before the fundraiser began. And, you know, during the, the campaign, people say, why did you, she's just bringing this up now because Hillary is running for president. I tried to bring that up during the Dateline interview. Lisa Myers and I had talked about it. Which year was that again? I'm sorry? Dateline. Which year was the Dateline interview? In 1999. Right, yeah. And I'm here in my living room with all of the Dateline people recording everything. And uh, Lisa asked me, she says, were you ever threatened? And I say, yes. As you and I have talked about, Hillary Clinton threatened me shortly after the rape. And just as I started to talk about that, the uh, uh, producer, Doug Adams, rushes into my living room and says, oh, no, we cannot go there. We cannot talk about Hillary Clinton. And Lisa and I just sort of look at each other and say, okay. So they started rolling the tape all over again, and I could not talk about it. They would not allow me. And, and and then, in, I don't remember the exact date, but it's the date that Hillary was running against, for senator of New York. Right. I sent an op-ed to, I think it was either the Washington Post, but anyway, it was picked up on several Internet sites. You know, Internet was beginning to be so popular at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wrote an open letter to Hillary Clinton discussing what she said to me at that time and how I hope that the people of New York would not be uh, have the wool pulled over their eyes regarding Hillary Clinton. So I, I was speaking about this long before the 2016 presidential campaign. Were there any interactions um, with the Clintons between Hillary speaking with you and then Bill Clinton's run for the presidency and his his well his rise to power essentially when <clears throat> a lot of these scandals came out right it was you and Kathleen Wiley and Paula Jones and but was there any communication in between? Yes, there was. Shortly after I returned home probably a few days, I began getting calls from Bill Clinton. And I would tell my assistant, Berta Young, I'd say, 
and she did not know about the rape, and this was very uncomfortable. She would call and say, Bill Clinton is wanted, is is on the phone for you. And I would tell her, please tell him I'm not here. That happened several times. Then I had the misfortune of answering one of those calls. I pick it up, my normal greeting, and say, Brownwood Manor, Mrs. Hickey, may I, where can I direct your call? And this voice on the other line says, Hi, this is Bill Clinton. When are you coming to Little Rock again? I could, I could not believe that he was calling me and asking me to come to Little Rock again. And so I just hung up. And he never called back after that. And then in 1991, I was at a nursing home seminar in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And all of a sudden, just before noon, this gentleman comes to the door and he said, Mrs. Broderick is the one outside. So I get up and my nurses follow me out. I had the same nurse with me that was there the day of the rape and her sister. They were both in my employ. And they follow me out and I walk down around the corner where the man points and there stands Bill Clinton. And he rushes over to me and tries to take my hand and I back up. And he begins this profuse apology saying he was so sorry for what he did, that he was a changed man, that he was now a family man, and he was not that person anymore. And this was a shock, you know, to see him standing there in my presence. And he just looked at me after he made all these statements. And I said, you go to hell. And I walked off back to my nurses. And they said, what was that all about? And I said, that man just apologized to me. And it, it was just, it was an absolute total surprise, total shock. But then I found out why he apologized to me, because two to three weeks later, he announced he was running for president. And when he started running for president, was there any concern from them that you were going to talk about your experience, especially when other women began coming forward and and Hillary Clinton essentially at that point took the job of, of enforcer, of ensuring that nobody told their story and, and attempted oh, exactly. to discredit them. Exactly. No, <clears throat> I had seen how Jennifer Flowers and Paula Jones had been treated and other women that had come forward in Arkansas about uh, just a sexual assault claims. And I saw how Hillary and her war on women had trashed them, and there was no way I was going to come out. I mean, I had decided back in 99, I was not coming forward. I was not going to suffer under their wrath. So I never came forward until I was outed by the Paula Jones case. And then at that point, um, you initially denied anything happened because you wanted to fly under the radar, and then it was in Clinton's second term that you began to tell your story. Is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I told my attorney... When, I, when he got the letter that I was going to be deposed by Paula Jones, uh, that I wanted out of this. There was no way. My life was going along just fine. I wanted nothing to do with this, and there was no way that I was going to confirm all of these allegations. So that's when I denied. I did not come forward until the 99 interview after I had been deposed by Ken Starr. My son is an attorney, and he had known since he was about 19 years old what had happened to me, and he was aware of the situation. 
and why I had lied to the Paula Jones. But he called me one day and he said, Mom, we got a, uh, a letter from Ken Starr's people in the Independent Council and you're going to be deposed. So he came over to my house and he said, you're going to have to tell the truth. And I told him, I said, I can't. I mean, I've hid from this for so long and I will not come forward. And he said, you're looking at a civil case versus the independent counsel federal case. He said, you have to tell the truth. And so that's what I did. And what happened after that? When you when you first told your story in 1999 in a very public way, of course, there was there was a cover up that Michael Isikoff described in his book, Uncovering Clinton, not just about your story, but a number of different stories. Because, of course, uh, Bill Clinton was the first Democrat president in quite some time, and, and the media did feel some obligation to, to protect him, despite obvious and pro <clears throat> an obvious proliferation of evidence that he had, he had, uh, he had been awful in, in many different scenarios. But you must have felt as if it, this, the saga was almost over. This is 1999. Bill Clinton's on his way out. Did you ever suspect this was going to come up again with the second Clinton, the one who threatened you running for president twice? Oh, no, no. After the 99 interview, I got an overwhelming positive, you know, comments from the public. It's the media that tore me down, just like Dan Rather did in 1999 on the uh, Don Imus show. He made the comment back then that, if the allegations of Juanita Broderick are true, it was too long ago, and it's time to move on. That was that right. I could not believe that Dan Rather was making that statement, and that's the way so many of them were. It's like this is old news. If it happened, it happened, but we must move on. So that was the view of the media, and I would. And so after that interview, I became quiet again and would never have come out had Hillary Clinton not made her tweet and included in her talks to college students that all victims of sexual abuse should come forward and be heard and be believed. We're with you. The public outrage for her making that statement went viral. It was and and I went ballistic. You know, I did not know how to use Twitter at the time. I had to have the help of my 13-year-old grandson to explain to me how to use Twitter, even though he did not know what I was going to tweet. And so I sat and I thought about that for a long time, and I thought, I've got to answer this woman. She is not a, a woman for, for women's rights. Uh, there's no way you can equate her with that sentence. And so I tweeted, nothing that I hadn't said many years before, I tweeted, I was 35 years old when Bill Clinton, the Arkansas Attorney General, raped me and Hillary Clinton threatened me. I'm now 73 and it never goes away. I mean, Jonathan, all hell broke loose. I mean, I had no idea the power of Twitter. I, I mean, I was just a 73-year-old woman trying to answer to this woman. And, uh, I mean, it was – and then within a few minutes, my phone was ringing off the wall, reporters wanting to know what this was all about. 
And my son was about the third or fourth call, and he's an attorney. Yeah. And he said, he said, uh, Mom, what did you do? And I said, I have no idea. And I didn't. I didn't realize that Twitter being instant went worldwide. You know, it was a surprise to me. So that's what got me back into it, Jonathan. I remember reading the tweet. Was there any reaction from the Clintons on this issue? I remember, excuse me, in a couple of interviews, Hillary just said, you know, allegations have been dealt with. I don't want to talk about it. But do you know of any other reaction that they had to this? Because as you say, I I forget how many retweets your tweet had, but it was it was pretty insane. And it cropped up in my news feed within a couple of hours of you sending out sending it out easily. And then from there, the narrative began to shift. This would be, of course, the election against uh, against Donald Trump, not the uh, the primary run against Barack Obama. Uh, the the narrative started to change, and suddenly, a discussion that got uh, like kind of squelched in the '90s, a discussion about whether or not Bill Clinton was guilty of sexual assault, and and actually litigating his actions. Suddenly, that discussion was on the table again, and it was it was very strange, I think, for a lot of political watchers to see discussions and hear names they hadn't heard in 20 years um, being suddenly uh, discussed and and talked about again. Right. And so many people now are saying, well, that was adjudicated and litigated. That's a lie. This situation Mm -hmm. was never litigated and was never solved, you might say. But one week after I sent that tweet out, Hillary Clinton removed from her website, You Should Be Believed. Really? I did not know that. Yes. Yes. So when did the Trump campaign, to bring it all the way to the present, I guess, uh, how did the, when did the Trump campaign get in touch with you? Uh, the Trump campaign never really contacted me. Uh, President Trump, or candidate Trump then, would retweet some of my tweets. Right. But I wasn't contacted by them to uh, appear at the second debate until the day before. I had been in Washington, D.C. doing an, an extensive uh, interview with some of the other Clinton victims at the old Watergate Hotel. Uh, it was done by Breitbart and Aaron Klein. And I was on a plane going back home when I got a call from the Trump people uh, asking if I would attend the uh, second debate the next night. And I had to really think about that, Jonathan, because, you know, that Access Hollywood tape had come out. And my family were so against Trump, and I had to really think. And my son made the comment to me. He said, Mom, you're just being used. Do not go. And I told him at the time that I had to think about it, and I had such a short time to think about it. And then I finally thought, I'm going to go. I don't care who's being used. We are going to be able to tell our story and be seen with President Trump in the most public of forum. We have been told to shut up and go away for decades. And this was our opportunity to say, hey, you made the wrong call. Bill Clinton is a rapist and a sexual assaulter and a sexual predator. And this needs to come out. So that's why I eventually went. And after that, so this is this takes us, I guess, to the the last. I remember watching that debate, um, and the, uh, Bill Clinton especially was clearly uncomfortable by what was going on. To see all of these, well, essentially uh, ghosts from his past come back to haunt him during his wife's presidential run. 
But what's it like been since then? So you you know you you suddenly took a very public profile during the Trump campaign. That election's over. Now you've written this book. Are you just sort of uh, settling in and, and doing interviews and selling books? Yes, yes. And people say, well, yeah, she's got something to say now because she has a book to sell. Listen, I sold my nursing homes in 2008 and retired. I am self-sufficient financially. I do not need the income. But I I thought it was important to have this in writing and have it down. And I do go all around the United States speaking uh, and sometimes there's books there to sell, sometimes there's not. But it's important to me to speak about my life and how Bill Clinton affected me. Where can people find your book? It's on Amazon.com, and it's also, Jonathan, on my website. You can order on my website, and it's JuanitaBroderick.com. And my last name is spelled differently. It's B R O A. D-D-R-I-C-K. Well, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to, to tell your story. Well, Jonathan, thank you for asking. Ladies and gentlemen, that was an interview with Juanita Broderick. And uh, this show was brought to you by Total Rentals. I hope that uh, you'll check out some of our past shows. You can find those at thebridgehead.ca. I also uh, blog there uh, daily to kind of try to keep people up. Uh, up to date on what's going on on the front lines of the culture wars. We cover everything from from Justin Trudeau to American politics. And actually recently, as I mentioned uh, in the introduction to the last show, uh, I did a research trip to Russia with several journalists, and my first essay-length piece is up on the bridgehead now. It's called A Night with Putin's Wolves, and it's about a Russian Orthodox biker gang that has also functioned as a paramilitary group. It's, It's very hard to describe in anything uh, shorter than, than, than a full podcast. But go, go to thebridgehead.ca and check that out if you're interested. And uh, we'll be coming uh, with several new interviews in, in the next two weeks. And some of those are going to be very fascinating as well. We're going to be talking to a prominent African human rights activist who is pushing back against the Western agenda uh, on trying to push abortion and so-called reproductive rights in Africa, and we'll also be talking to an apologist who speaks to Muslims about Christianity. So those should be uh, both very interesting conversations, and we hope that you'll join us for those.